Hello and welcome to the show and the first and possibly only ever episode of One Night in Product Live. Well, what do we mean by live? Well, earlier on, a couple of friends and I were supposed to be meeting up on Twitter spaces to have an open chat about whether product market fit is really dead. But it turns out the only thing that was really dead was Twitter spaces itself, which was an awful experience with terrible audio quality and it kicked us all out. We all had to take our ball and go home. But we decided to be undeterred. We didn't want to disappoint our legion of fans. So we decided to go to plan B, do an as live recording on the podcast, get it out there straight away, no cuts, no edits, just a quick clean up, push it out the door and everyone can get all those great insights as soon as possible. So without further ado, if you want to find out if product market fit really is dead or if it's just resting, stick with us on One Night in Product. Well, thanks for coming, everyone, and joining us on what was a Twitter space, but Twitter, unfortunately, under the auspices of Elon Musk, seems to be basically the worst performing app in the world. Audio quality was terrible. It kicked us all out. So we're, we've now gone back to plan B, which is knock it out as a podcast. So uh, going back to basics, I am delighted to welcome again, uh, Andrea Sayers, the Senior Product Marketing Manager for Trint and Content Writer and Advisor for Right to Left consultancy that aims to help organizations build and scale products their customers need and want and coincidentally we also have with us dave martin the founder of right to left and the creator of the momentum program and the product value creation plan they recently released a white paper with the somewhat spicy title product market fit is dead so let's find out if it's really time to read it the last rights or if they're just trying to get some clickbait attention hey folks how you doing good good uh thanks for having us here yeah great to be here no worries. It's good to have old friends around the table talking about some important topics. So before we get started, let's get down to definitions. So product market fit. April Dunford says it's not a useful concept. Mark Andreessen says it's the only thing that matters. You're saying it's dead. But before we talk about whether it's dead, how do you even define product market fit in the first place? Well, first of all, I like a spicy title. I don't know about you. <laughs> Uh, and it gets the conversation going, doesn't it? Uh, I think that like many other terms in product, um, product market fit is one of those things that has gone misunderstood, um, just not well-defined in general. Uh, so I don't like the term PMF. I think it's absolutely dead. It's a myth. I'm going to side with April on this one. Uh, you don't just find fit. And that's the only thing that matters. Uh, it's a continuous thing that happens. And it also has context. Um, so I like to think of it as product context fit. So what is the context in which your product is able to provide value, in which your product is helpful? Um, and we need to approach it as such. It's not a, a black and white yes or no, this is it, we're done. <laughs> um, it's, it's a bit more nuanced than that, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, when we, when we, all we really want to do and all every company strives to do, whether it's at its early days or whether it's a large scale up, is we want to satisfy our customers' needs. And in doing so, we want to create them value of some sort. And the phrase PMF, you know, is an attempt to help us focus on that problem. And that focus is great and really positive. But, you know, as uh, I'm agreeing with Andrea, as she's saying, it's not, it's not uh, binary. It's not like it either fits or it doesn't. 
it's uh, really fluid, it's continuous, and it's linear. It's, uh, you know, it's either, it, it's not on or off. It can be good, it can be bad, it can be all the varying op- various degrees in between. So um, I think the phrase is, uh, the, the idea of PMF is a good direction, a good drive, a good lead, but it's not necessarily a good thing to help us make business decisions and drive prioritization. It's more of a, um, more of a nice paradigm to focus people's minds. But just to push back on that a little bit, I mean, are we really saying that product market fit is dead in that case, or are we really kind of saying that it's alive and kicking, but just kind of misunderstood and that basically people are using maybe that binary thing that you're talking about as a, like their understanding of product market fit, but actually product market fit is fine. It's just a more fluid thing that they have to pay attention to. Like, is it really dead or just misunderstood? Well, when you, you know, if you kind of read the book from Sean Ellis, who was involved in coming up with this phrase, he very much defines it as, you know, if you've got it, you know it. And if you haven't, you know, he definitely defines it as a binary thing. If you've got it, you know, the inbound inquiries for your new thing is going to be nonstop. The phone will be ringing off the hook. You won't be able to get away from all the people signing up. And, uh, you know, that that's, I think that, that, specifically shapes it as uh binary as either on or off and it, it, that that's the problem we need to redefine and rethink about this in a less binary way but does that mean it's just evolving then like again it's not died it's just become a new thing a more modern definition or does it mean that the old definition was kind of dead on arrival shouldn't really have been there in the first place represented a reality that wasn't actually real in any way shape or form or was it something that was okay back then when they first came out of it but that time has moved on like where does it fall on that spectrum that's an interesting question um i'm going to be diplomatic about this (laughs) and give the the most producty answer that i can which is you can only define things with as much evidence as you have at the time and i think at the time it was an okay way of trying to add focus to something. But as we learn, as we evolve, as we, you know, educate ourselves about how things work and how SaaS businesses work, um, it's become more and more obvious that it was never really a thing. But it was a good start to to being able to define this thing, right? This This ability to say, are we able to provide value and what is the context in which we can provide that value? And can we monetize that value? Cause at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to build businesses. Um, but I, looking back at it, I don't think it was really something that should have been defined as a yes or no. Um, but it was a good start at trying to focus the conversation. Um, if that makes sense. So I would still classify it as, as DOA. Good attempt, but didn't quite work. Yeah, it's. I mean, it it needs to. We need to move on and look forwards and find a better way to think about these things. The you know, when we think about the period when these this came up, when this first was used, you know, cloud was a brand new thing. We're going back quite a way, and the idea we were in the journey of of modern product management focused on outcomes instead of IT projects delivering features. We're on, we're at the very beginning of that becoming the, uh, the the preferred approach, and I think 
PMF as a phrase helped help solidify that as approach and helped investors understand. But we need to move on. We need to think about the value drivers that make it up, make up it, make up what's known as PMF today. We need to look at it more granularly and understand the gauges in a bit more detail that are moving so that we can make better business decisions so that we don't accidentally scale too early or scale in the wrong way and uh, miss our opportunity because of misunderstanding this. But one of the things I guess we do have to at least agree on is the fact that there is still this perfectly valid notion that there are unmet needs out there or poorly met needs that one or more groups of people, let's call them a market, that they need to have met and are looking for ways to meet and delight them in fixing those problems, whatever it is that they have, the struggling moments in jobs to be done uh, terms. And that there are companies out there that could build, say, products to serve those needs and hopefully continue to serve those needs in a scalable fashion that can serve those needs for the many. So that does still sound like product market fit. It doesn't sound like a binary on or off thing. It sounds like that's something that they're going to need to keep an eye on and make sure that the yeah, needs yeah. aren't changing. But like, it still kind of sounds like we're talking about the same thing. Maybe it's, it's just the terminology that's wrong. Is that fair? Or Yeah, let's spin it on its head. Let's ask it the other way around. What if we have two products in, that solve exactly the same problem for exactly the same audience? Do they both have PMF? Does that mean they're both equal? Or is one better than the other? How is if, if one is better than the other, then PMF can't be binary. No, absolutely. But the the core concept, I guess, is what I'm getting at, is there's still this idea that there are unmet needs that need to be met by a product. And if you're doing that at a substantial scale that, and people are continuously buying you, then there's some kind of something fit there. But what would we yeah, call yeah, that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think uh, and you know that idea of problem-solution fit, I think, fits the product world a little bit better. Well, solution, though, has a bit of a funny angle, though, because solution could also mean stuff that's not part of the product as well, which is cool. Like, But yeah. obviously, in the VC world, like things that have solutions and services on the back of them as well aren't really that trendy. So, Yeah, I think Andrea has a better way of thinking about this. Yeah, I like to refer to it as product context fit, right? So what is the context in which your product is valuable? And when that context changes, are you able to adapt to that change? Uh, because even if you have, quote unquote, PMF <laughs> in a market, in a segment, in whatever we want to call it, inevitably that segment, those users are going to grow and evolve and have new problems. But is the company, is the product going to be able to adapt to those things? And that, I think, is is the real issue. And many companies can have product context fit and many companies can lose product context fit. And there's countless examples. Let's take Netflix. They had product context fit and then they lost product context fit because they made a lot of really bad choices that provided zero value to their customers. So they started losing it. Same with um, Peloton, right? They had a context in which they fit. And when that context ended, they weren't able to adapt. Um, So... That, I think, is a better definition for what we're looking for. So we keep coming back, aside from context, to this kind of idea of continuousness, like this idea that it's something that you have to continually monitor to make sure that whatever it is that we call it, that whatever it is that you're aiming for or optimizing for, that that's something that you're keeping on top of and making sure that you don't lose. 
But how do you even measure whatever we call that? Again, so someone like April Dunford will say that you can't measure product market fit. It's operationally useless for her because she can't measure it in any way that helps her to define any kind of marketing strategy or anything along those lines. Some people are going to be out there saying, well, it's just a feeling like, you know, if you've got it and if you don't know, then you probably haven't got it. And, you know, these are all kind of really interesting woolly phrases, which don't really tell me anything as someone that's maybe trying to optimize A or B to try to get wherever I'm going. But what do we measure if we are trying to measure some measure of success about where we're going and what we should be optimizing for and concentrating on? Yeah, I mean, I think the it's worth pointing out before talking about what we think we should measure that, you know, Sean Ellis has the Sean Ellis test and some people well, will say that's a measure of, Yeah. I'm not suggesting I buy into it, but it's you know there, there are some people that will point to that, and I would agree with April that 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 that, that equally isn't going to help her anymore. It's still it's still not very useful in the business context for decision making. But if we can get to the value drivers, if we can get under the covers and think more about the score, more about scoring and understanding the assumptions were how we think we create value and being able to score those assumptions and understand how well we're delivering on those assumptions, then then we start to get to a place where we start to measure whether we're achieving the value we set out to achieve. In other words, finding a way to measure our strategy rather than um, you know, rather than only looking at the end result, which is slightly laggy for many companies. If you're in a B2B company with 12-month sales cycle and three-year contracts, all right, so whether we call it product market fit or product context fit or problem solution fit or whatever type of fit that we're actually talking about, there's still this general need for companies to find problems to solve and then solve them in scalable ways and go and find a big market of people to go and sell that to and solve those problems for and obviously then continue to develop that market, develop their product and make sure that they're setting themselves up for success and setting themselves up to scale and you know getting that hyper growth that everyone's always after. So again, whatever we want to call that, there is a kind of almost a first inflection point. We're saying that it's not binary, but it's it's there's certainly a tipping point where they can start to think that at least they're starting to have some kind of traction. And there are lots of barriers that get in the way of that. So what are some of the key barriers that you've seen for actually getting to that first inflection point? Well, again, whatever we want to call it. I'm going to let Dave answer this one. Yeah, sure. I mean, I when I help companies with this problem, um, what I regularly see is probably two key areas. Um, not understanding the root cause problem correctly, getting it to an abstract level where they act beyond the symptoms. Fixing the symptoms often doesn't achieve solving the problem about in a valuable way. And uh, then the second one is not clearly understanding as an organization what those value assumptions are between how the company's value, what we want to sell to the customer versus the value the customer is going to get and how the user using our product, how their behavior is going to change in order to create value for the customer. And those assumptions are often half written down on the one side, on the customer value side, very rarely defined and explored properly on the user behavior side. And without that clearly being understood, you can't iterate and be testing your hypotheses properly of whether you're actually solving problems. Uh, if I may add one thing, I think on my side, what I would add is I've seen way too many startups 
try to build products when their company strategy or their business strategy is the same thing as their product strategy. Um, and that's dangerous because their business is their business and the product should be focusing on providing that value that, that Dave is referring to. Uh, so business strategy and product strategy are two different concepts. Uh, and when we try to think of, of them as being one, that's when you run into issues like, oh, yeah, you know, one of our goals is to make more money. Well, that's great. But making more money is a business goal. The product should be focusing on how do we provide value to our customer that obviously in turn then loops back to that. But it's very difficult as a team when you provide them with a goal or an OKR that just says, you know, increase ARR. <laughs> what does that mean? How do you work with that? Um, it's, it's very difficult. Well, arguably, increasing ARR would be quite a, a nice little OKR because there's, you know, you, you're getting totally into outcomes and there's no guidance at all. But obviously, on the other hand, it's also pretty broad. I think another thing that I've seen as well from my experience and people I've spoken to is this idea that you've maybe got a founder with a little little roller decks of people that they can get in touch with, you know, some passionate early adopters that they can bring on board and they can start to get some kind of solution together that they can then take out to those types of people. And yeah, they almost get this mirage of, let's call it product market fit, because they sit there and they say, oh, well, X amount of customers already buying it. And that's cool. So now we can just keep turning a handle on that and going. But actually, what they've done is they've just proved that they've got a good network or some early adopters and some companies that are really excited about just about anything, you know, go for your crossing the chasm type thing, you know, like the the really early people that will literally just spend their money on anything just to see if it looks good. But they fail to cross that chasm because they never actually do any of the thinking that's needed to work out how to take that out into prime time. So I think there's a, yeah, there's obviously a number of different reasons. But some people, when they're trying to get to that stage, will just sit there when they maybe hit a stall or they sit there and say, well, yeah, it's, it's started to slow down. Our product market fit that we thought we had is now starting to maybe lapse or start to subside a little bit. And again, that touches a lot on your binary. Like it's not that you've got it and you never lose it. Like you've got it and then you might lose it depending on conditions. And it's very common for people at that point to sit there and say, ah, just one more feature, just one more feature. And then I think one of the most interesting things and something I heard on another podcast recently from Andy Ratcliffe, who I think actually invented the term product market fit, apparently, and then Mark Andreas and stole it off him. But the thing that really resonated with me is that you don't really just want to add more features. That's not actually going to help. What you need to do is be really flexible about the market side, maybe more flexible about the market side than the product side, and maybe find an audience that your product does resonate with, rather than continuously piling on and piling on and piling on new features to try and get it back. Like, Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, yeah. Go, on, go ahead. But yes, I think that's just a solid yes from both of us. <laughs> but I'll let Dave speak. Yeah, I was going to say the, the. I think about it in a slightly different way. I think about it. I call it the product momentum gap. And you've got that traction, and it you believe you're onto a winner. And it may well be, as you say, just a mirage, or it may be you were onto a winner into for the small niche subsection of the market that you were dealing with and as you start to scale the reality is you start to sell to people who weren't in that core market they're slightly out of it and 
unfortunately, because you think you have fit and this binary mentality, instead of recognizing when sales are slower and things aren't going quite as fast as you'd hoped as you start to scale, a funny thing happens, very counterintuitive. People go broader. They then go, well, we sell to even wider market. And then you go further out. And as that happens, in order to close sales for mar- for now, a completely different market, really, it might still be the same sector or category, but it's it's a different set of problems now. Now we're then faced with all those requests for these individual customers who are in these wider sectors, wider you know wider versions of it, further away from the core, from sales to close deals, and we end up then in that stuck place where we're adding feature after feature, thinking it's for the market, but really it's for the individual clients who are now we're serving you know, an undefined market. We've lost our we've lost our focus, and I see that happening. All the time. Yeah, I think it's always interesting when you see people's personas and the market segments that they are going after, and you start to try to work out in some cases like what the connections are at all. And I think another really interesting thing that you can see on people's websites, for example, is like almost different packs of go to market materials for all these very different markets that they've kind of. Yeah, here's our one for this type of market. Here's our, I'm not going to name any names, obviously, but here's our one for this type of market. Here's our one for that type of market. And like a lot of it's the same core concept because obviously the product's broadly the same, but they just almost have to spin like five different stories for all of the different types of people because no one story fits everyone. And it just feels to me like, as you say, like that focus, the drifting of the focus means that it's really hard to be actually good for any of them because you're always spreading yourself thinly across all of them because no one's going to staff the company with like five segments worth of people to build that stuff. It's going to be the same team building it. They're just going to be building stuff really spread thinly across all of those different markets and probably never satisfying any of them. Unpopular opinion, but I think personas are a terrible idea. That might be a conversation for another day. But yeah, just to add on to, to what you said and what Dave has said, um, I think if if we want to like have a real world example or or a you know use case case study of this, it's um, Figma. I think they did a really good job at understanding their quote unquote market and creating value for that market specifically. And instead of adding feature after feature after feature, they understood that they had to niche down, like Dave said, and build something that provided value for designers. And inherently, once there was value there, non-designers also starting finding value in it. So I'm not a designer and I use Figma. And it's one of those things, right? Like they were able to, to really understand what value meant to the customers they were serving. And by doing that, then they were able to expand on that value organically. And then get acquired for lots and lots of money, which is obviously everyone's I dream. Mean, Honestly, great for them. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping they're enjoying their yachts. But a key part of all of this stuff is, and I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, is about the alignment and the the cross-functional alignment within the company so that everyone in the company knows, broadly speaking, what they're going after. Everyone's got the same view of the strategy, the vision. But something I've seen in the past is that everyone in the company has somewhat of a different idea about what they're going after. So again, whether we call it product market fit or the whether we're talking about the product or the market, whatever part of it we're talking about, they all think that they're attacking maybe a different market. Maybe they're 
specifically working on one of the sub markets or these unrelated markets that they're serving and they just have that kind of blinkered vision of like, well, yeah, we're just serving this or we're just serving that. And like you can speak to all these different people in the company and they just have different ideas entirely about what the even what even the purpose of the company is. So if we're gonna try and avoid that situation, what are some of the key ways that you've seen that we can drive more better alignment throughout the organization so that we're all actually pulling in the same direction and going for the same prize? The way I think about this and work with clients on is getting back to those value drivers we talked about, those value assumptions. And if you define those into a measurable set that is like five key value indicators um, and the assumptions behind them of why they're important are written down and shareable, it's much easier to create that alignment and everybody paddling in the same direction, especially from the product and engineering team. When they're able to see this product strategy which is often, you know, in some of the companies I work with, it might be a 40-page document, it might be a 200-page report. It's often super hard. How are they meant to simulate that and understand it? In, the, in that situation, if they can get it down to articulate it to five user behaviors, that, and they might be high level, but five user behaviors that as a product and engineering function we're trying to change and improve for the better or create if they're new ones, then then we can understand the strategy and it removes the ambiguity because the ambiguity is always between what the customer value is and what the behavior of the user is. And if we define that and agree it with the assumptions, then we really get everybody aligned. We also get to empower teams in a much bigger, better way. If you're empowered with your job is to make this, your OKR is to make this behavior improve for the customer, you've then got lots of different ways you can innovate to achieve that goal rather than something more worthy where half of the job is first trying to work out what the strategy means and what the objective means before trying to work out how you're going to address it. All right, so your white paper that you both put out together stuck a stake in the heart of product market fit, but you've also written about your solution to its death or at least somewhat of the solution to the death of product market fit and like what comes afterwards. And this is the product value creation plan or vcp so elevator pitch time what is the vcp and how does it fit into all of this and how does it solve for or replace the now rotting product market fit i'll, I'll jump in on that yeah yeah i'm gonna let dave take it but if i would have to like try to describe it in one very short sentence or a question rather because i like to ask questions you know me it would be do you really understand how you're providing value? Mic drop. <laughs> Leave it to Dave. For me to describe what it is, it's uh, in the easiest way, or more importantly, why you want it. It makes your strategy operational. It makes the product strategy operational, and that means you can now go and track strategic value, focus on whether you're making moving the needle, avoid the tactical things that keep getting in the way that are distractions, and focus on that. 10x stuff to borrow Ken Norton's phrase, the 10x things, not the 10% things. And by, by operationalizing your the strategy, we, we, we get to empower teams. And it's like the missing link between OKRs and strategy. Oh, bold claim. So what are some of the key questions that that VCP answers in, like some of the key inputs that you put into it to get that result that you just talked about? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, you start with understanding what your business goals are. And at the end of the day, that's our job. You know, we're here, as much as I prefer to think about the customer first, we are here, we are spending the business's money to re- create a return. So we start with the business objectives. From there, we map down to what the customer values are, how we, what the key high values are we think the customer, we're trying to achieve for the customer that will are big enough and important enough that they'll support our business goals, whatever they may be. And then from there, we go to the final stage of the value chain. What are the user behaviors or user actions that we need to impact in order to create those customer values? And once we've articulated that, agreed it, collaboratively done this in an inclusive way, um, based on the informed by the product strategy, we're not trying to rewrite the strategy. We're just trying to rearticulate it. So we're not we're not trying to change what has been worked out already. Then we are, end up coming up with the last piece, which is coming up with lead indicators, which we call value indicators. Come up with the value indicators that help us understand whether or not those behaviors are going in the right direction. And those indicators are the VCP. So we end up as product people suddenly with a table with five numbers on that we can track just like our marketing counterparts and just like our sales counterparts that we can use instead of the roadmap to to see whether we're going in the right direction. So we can stop thinking about the only way to measure our performance at the minute is on whether we delivered something on the time we said we would. Instead of that, we are focusing much more on actually we're measuring our performance based on whether we made this, the figures we said we would go up or not. And our objectives are our way to then uh, to, to, to actually deliver that and do that. So what sort of figures then are we talking about with regards to not measuring so much like whether we're just delivering stuff? I mean, obviously, that's the whole feature factory thing. But like we're saying that this is almost like a scorecard that we can keep referring back to to say, well, this is how we're doing. This is how we're tracking. But how does that then translate to specific value that you're delivering to the business like scalability the kind of because one of the big goals of product or saying that you have product market fit is you want to sit there and say well we're ready for prime time you know give us loads of money because we're going to scale 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 so what types of uh, values are going to be coming out of this vcp that would tell you that sort of thing so sorry i just want to touch on a really important thing that you just said which is, oh, we have product market fit, we can now go get lots of money. (laughs) That is a terrible way of approaching everything, particularly product market fit. And second, company strategy. Um, I, when I said earlier, company strategy is not the same as product strategy. One of the most obvious examples and horrible examples that I've seen when things go really wrong is when as part of the company strategy, um, you know, they have, oh, we have to get funding. I'm like, that's not a strategy. Like, what are you trying to do? <laughs> really? Like, that is an output of something that is a result of something. But your sole purpose of existing is not to get money. It is to provide value. And I think that is where the VCP is crucial is because it's connecting company goals with customer benefit and customer value. And I think the strategy kind of skips a little bit over that. Um, so it's a way of connecting almost like the three of them, right? So you've got your your business goals and your company strategy, your product strategy, and then you have the VCP, which kind of ties all of that stuff together really well. And how many people are using this already then, uh, Dave? I mean, you're obviously taking this out to potential 
customers or maybe even customers that you're working with have you got anyone using this yet and got any early kind of indicators of success or is this still something that needs to be proven out yeah i mean i i know of direct personally because obviously we've published this stuff and made it freely available so i don't know any everybody who's using it but i personally know of at least 40 companies who are using it um i've worked directly with probably half of those um hands-on um, and the companies I've worked with, because they're the ones I can only talk about those really, the companies I've worked with, it's what it's done is it's completely changed how they prioritize. It's changed. In our, and the people I've worked with are at all levels of the business, the investor, you know, the VC, the chairman, all the way through to the, you know, the, the C-suite, the CPO, and then the product team and, and the engineers, along with the other parts of the organization. And for the investors, it means that they can now measure whether the strategy is working. They can feel much more confident whether the strategy is working. They always knew that focusing on delivery of a deadline wasn't going to prove it would work, but at least it proved there was momentum. But now they have something that lets them understand whether the, the actual things we're building are actually moving the needle in the way we thought they would. It changes the conversation at C-suite to focus on those value assumptions and once they're understood, it completes that. Once they're agreed and discussed, or better still, if they're in, we're improving them and able to change them because we've learned they're wrong, we're able to be, be truly agile. And it aligns marketing and sales with product in a much stronger way when everybody agrees on those assumptions. And for the product teams, it means they can clearly look, instead of trying to evaluate whether a particular problem set or number of features to, to produce is going to uh, somehow magically make ARR go up or on its own. Instead, they can see whether it's going to make the user behavior go improve the behaviors that we believe we should be influencing and supporting to improve the lives of their customers. And that gives them a focus. It means they're then working on something that they directly impact rather than something that's very indirect with lots of other parameters, which makes, makes it much easier for them to do their job and be the fail fast conversation suddenly becomes much quicker because they can see those leading metrics easier and see and and if they're failing move on and because the commitment was on the vcp not the roadmap no one gets too upset if bits of the roadmap swap and change because it was the that it was the value assumptions and the user behaviors we committed to improving not that feature x was going to be the winner to do it all right, so let's assume that that's all true, but there's going to be some people out there working in organizations that are so far from accepting that type of thing and that they are going to keep wanting to dump out these features in the order and get these commitments as soon as they can. Like, What's one thing that you would recommend that these people, people working in these types of environments that are maybe going through a bit of a transformation journey to get anywhere near what you just said, one thing that they should start by doing to try to move along that path and get a little bit closer to perfection? I mean, the very first thing, and I don't totally agree, there's so many companies at the earlier start of that journey. To, it's a long journey for some orgs, big culture change. The first thing is writing down the value assumptions. No, nobody's going to get upset at the idea of you documenting and agreeing and debating whether what they are and whether your features are supporting them. It's um, to help you focus those features and deliver them better. And that conversation, as soon as it involves the right key stakeholders, becomes really interesting really fast yeah i agree and i've always said always ask why and that applies to new features new solutions new ideas like do we understand why um a better question is 
do we understand how this might provide value? And that is where you need to start is, do you understand if it's providing value in the first place, how it might provide value? What is the user's perception of value? Um, And I've seen in more than one situation where the company believes that their product provides a certain value, but the perception of the customer is completely different. So you can either adjust and cater and understand their perception of value, or you can keep, you know, driving against a wall (laughs) and trying to convince that you're somehow something else. And that is almost the definition of quote unquote product market fit, right? If there is no fit, why are you insisting that there is a fit? Um, If if the fit quote unquote isn't there, the context isn't there, then stop trying to drive it. (laughs) But understand what it is that, that, your users need, what problems they're having. And and most importantly, like I said, what, what value are you providing or might you be able to provide? Excellent advice. Now this would be the point where we'd have some time for questions from our Twitter space participants, but unfortunately we lost those now and 10 minutes ago or so. So I guess Ultimately, if anyone does have any questions, what I might do is put a little slido up on the show notes so people can submit them and then maybe we can do some kind of AMA session afterwards or just do it all online because I was really looking forward to getting deep and meaningful with some of our participants. But sadly, they've all gone to bed or having their dinner by now or whatever it is that they do with their lives. So it just remains for me to thank you, Dave, and thank you, Andrea. It's always a pleasure. Sure, people can connect with you on LinkedIn or Twitter after this if they want to. But where can they find more about the value creation plan, the death of product market fit, and all the other resources that you've got available? Righttoleft.co.uk. There you go. That was very professional. Can I try that again? <laughs> no, this is live. We're not. We're not editing <laughs> oh, any of this. No. no, this is going out exactly as is. We've. If they go to the um, homepage of Right to Left. The, we've literally just released a ten post, a ten art, ten article blog series. The four of which explain all the concepts, and the other six explain exactly how to do it. And you can, they're free. You can read them. You don't have to register or anything. If you want to download the templates, you can bring your email address in, and we'll send you those along with some other extra goodies to help you. Um, so there's a quite a lot of content just landed. It, uh, it goes. It, it'll be there by the time this is live well there you go well you hope so i mean i might even put this out tonight so don't uh but you better get you better start getting typing and releasing stuff just in case well i'll obviously write that all up put it all in the show notes throw this out to the world and hopefully they'll all start to administer their own funereal rights to the uh concept of product market fit and come and work out how to do it a little bit better well dave andrea it's been a pleasure thanks for hopping on after the unmitigated failure of the Twitter space and uh, yeah let's chat soon thank you for having us thanks very much as always thanks for listening I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com check out some of my other fantastic guests sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest but as for now Thanks, and good night.